1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and, we, and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So it's the, it's the first week of December, right? First week of December, and we've uh, officially sort of entered uh, what we call the Advent season. We've officially entered the Advent season, the time of year that we, we all get to celebrate uh, the true meaning of Christmas, the coming of Jesus into this world. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks sort of uh, uh, observing the historic meaning of this season with a sermon series that we're calling Joy to uh, the World. Joy to the World. We didn't come up with that title ourselves, but um, that's what we're calling this, this Advent series. And so uh, we're calling it Joy to the World because, you know, at the first Christmas... At the very first Christmas in a manger in Bethlehem, like that was the night that joy, joy in its truest form sort of broke into the fabric of human history. And so joy to the world, that's what we're unpacking over the next few weeks here. Now, um, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and, and turn it to First John. First John in the back of the Bible, uh, it's one of the last books. It's a really small book, so uh, don't go too fast or you might miss it. But um, that's where we're going to be this morning in First John. And so now normally, normally when you think like Christmas-related sermon, right? Like Christmas-related teaching, you're thinking like angels and shepherds and wise men and, and baby Jesus and swaddle cloths or lying in a little manger, right? But... The scripture we're looking at this morning doesn't necessarily describe the events surrounding Christmas like that. They don't, they don't tell us what happened at Christmas, but they do tell us why it happened. They do tell us why it happened. You see, Christmas time is a busy season, right? Uh, amen. <laughs> Christmas time is a busy season, so it's easy to uh, not actually th- think about like, like why it happened in the first place. Why did Jesus have to come at all? And so we're going to look at three short answers in in this text for why Christmas had to happen at all, why Jesus had to come from this single passage. And uh, the three things we're going to see as for why Christmas happened is so that first, God uh, extended the grace that we need. Secondly, God actually drew near to us. And thirdly, uh, God is, is growing his family. And so let's look at that first one. God extended the grace that we need. You see, the, the, the whole idea of, of God coming down and entering into human history as a baby is all about grace. It's all about grace. Read verse 1 with me, which says, That which was from the beginning... Now, that's important right there, that it starts there. He says, that which was from the beginning. And, and we, when we look at the context, we actually see that the, the that, which 
uh, which uh, the, the author is, is speaking about, that John is talking about here, is he's, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus in this verse. You see, Jesus is from the beginning. And so what he's saying is Jesus precedes all things. He's the eternal one. He's the one without beginning and without end. You see, before there was anything, there was Jesus. He's not part of creation. He is the creator. There's another verse in the Bible that tells us that all things were created by him. They were created through him, and they were created for him. In verse 1 and 2 of this chapter, it says that that he's the word of life, the eternal life. And we need to start there on that truth. Just the eternality, the greatness of who Jesus is. We need to start there if we really want to make sense of why his grace is so amazing. We sung that this morning, didn't we? Amazing grace. If we want to understand why His grace is so amazing, then we need to start there. Why the event of His birth in human form is so astounding, then we need to start there. The fact that Jesus is God. That's important. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. You see, that actually sets Him apart that sets him apart from every other like religion founder or, or prophet. Like he's not pointing away from himself to some other body of truth or to some other being or to some other way. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, the eternal life, the word of life. It's like a few weeks ago when uh, I got lost at South Coast Plaza. <laughs> uh, I, I dropped my daughter off at her ballet class in Costa Mesa, and I, I headed over to, to, to South Coast and uh, the, you know, the mall, and uh, I had this idea that you know, I was going to order a pink smoothie for my little three-year-old daughter at the, at the smoothie shop before, before her class got out. Uh, and so I had 45 minutes to get this done, uh, but I have a horrible concept of time and of directions, and I hate them all, right? So like I, like I hardly ever go, go. So, the, so the odds were like stacked against me. They were not in my favor. And so I found myself running out of time, stressing out, I'm like sweating, I didn't know where I was going, so I run up to like a mall, you know those concierge desks, uh, I run up to this mall concierge guy and, and I ask him, you know, how do I get to the smoothie shop? How do I get to Nectar? And so he walks me over to the directory right next to his desk and he shows me and he says, you know, you are here and you need to be over here, right? So basically when I picked up my daughter, she got one pink smoothie and like one sweaty dad because I was like running all over the mall. Now, imagine what a pleasant surprise it would have been for me at that moment if when I walked up to that concierge desk and asked this guy where the smoothie shop was, if instead of showing me how to get there, he said, smoothies? You're looking for the smoothie shop? I am the smoothie shop. <laughs> and he reached under his desk and just plopped this pink smoothie on top, right? Like, 
that would be amazing, right? That would have saved me a lot of time. You see, Jesus says, I don't just show you the way. I am the way. He says, I don't just declare the truth. I am the truth. I don't just give eternal life. I am the life. Jesus doesn't just tell us how to get to God. He's God who came to us. You see, Christianity doesn't teach that God is, or that Jesus is some great prophet pointing the way to God and showing us how to save ourselves. No, according to the Christmas story, Jesus is God coming to save us. That's the point. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, Christianity is not a list of, you know, do all these things over here and, and just don't do all these things over here, which most of us kind of grow up with that assumption, right? That that's what Jesus teaches. Most of us grow up in the church thinking, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then at the end of the day, what I need to get down is that I need to do these things and I need to not do these things. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done. What he's done and what he has finished. You see, Christianity isn't about what we can do to sort of work ourselves up to to please God. It's about God being pleased in his goodness, in his kindness, in his mercy to come to us. That's Christianity. And so that's the first thing, the first reason that, uh, of why Christmas happened, so that God can extend that grace to us. Now the second thing we're going to see is how in the Christmas story, God drew near to us. He didn't just extend grace to us, but he drew near to us. You see, read the rest of verse 1 and then verse 2 with me. It says about Jesus, the eternal one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And again, he's talking about Jesus here. And what John is saying is he's saying, look, this great God... This eternal one, the word of life, the eternal life, Jesus, this great God, Jesus, who the one who made all things, the one who holds the key to life, John says, we've heard him. You see, John was one of Jesus' disciples. He walked with Jesus. He ministered with Jesus. And John is telling his readers, he says, look, this, this Jesus, we've heard him. We've heard him speak. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our very hands. Now, think about what he's saying there. I mean, think about what he's saying. He's saying that the one who created all things, the one who created all things, John was with him. John was saying, we were with the one who created all things. You see, John heard him speak at the Sermon of the Mount. John saw him die and rise again three days later. 
John leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper. John walked with the Lord Jesus. He followed him. You see, because Jesus was God in the flesh. That's how John was able to do that. You see, John's giving a testimony here. He's saying, look, this this creator, he's proved to us his power. He's proved who he is by the resurrection. And I actually walked with this guy. I saw him. I touched him. I heard his voice. It's familiar to my ears. Because Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus is not only divine, he's human too. When you think about the incarnation of Jesus. You guys know what that means, incarnation? That's what theologians call, you know, Jesus coming into human form. Think carne asada, right? (laughs) Carne means meat. And so incarnation is God putting on flesh. And so next time you're eating carne asada burrito, you'll be thinking about the beauty of the grace of Jesus. So... um, You're welcome for that. (laughs) But when you actually think about that, when you think about what's happening at the incarnation, like it should, it should amaze you. It should amaze you. The infinite God takes on a, a finite form. The extraordinary creator of the cosmos, he takes on the form of a creature. Unlimited greatness and unlimited power is buttoned up in a little swaddle and stuffed in a manger. Like, what in the world? We can't comprehend that. It's it's too humble. It's It's too ordinary for God to come as a baby. I want us to, to read, read this, this passage in Philippians 2 with me. Um, just with that in mind, with the incarnation in mind, let's read this passage in, and it should just like blow your mind. And, and in Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, Though He was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus. It's mind-boggling, right? The creator of the universe did this. Jesus, the one who is God. Jesus, the one whose name is above all names. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. The one who lacks nothing. He's supremely unique, supremely holy. He makes demons tremble in fear. He makes angels sing on high. He's perfect in all his attributes. They sing holy, holy, holy about this Jesus. Because he's God. He's God. And because Jesus was God, he couldn't die. He couldn't die, which would be the just penalty for sin. 
That is, until he emptied himself. Think about that. Our God, until he emptied himself of all prestige, of all privilege, and and put on flesh and bone, put on pain and suffering. And he did that so that we could be with God. So that we could be with God. You see, when when God created all things in the beginning, everything he created, he created it and he declared it and he said it was what? Good. He said it was good. That is until sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, all that was good that God created became stained by sin, became marred and infested with the marks of sin. People became selfish. Creation groans. And that continues on today. You see, what Jesus did in emptying himself and going to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, that was so that he could justly and rightly and graciously and mercifully reunite us with God. Restore the good life that God intended in the beginning. You see, in emptying himself like that, that was an act of grace in the highest degree. I mean, that is grace in the truest sense of the word. Read on in verse 3 with me. John says, At the end of verse 3, he says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John is saying that that, that all this that Jesus did, that's the grace of God coming near to us so that we could have fellowship with God. Now, if you're confused by now and wondering if Jesus is, is God or if he's man, the answer is yes. He's, he's both. He's fully God and he's fully man. And it's okay if that's hard to wrap your mind around like, like it, mentally because it's, it's supposed to bring out in us just wonder and awe and worship. He is unlike any other. The grace of God coming down to be with us. You know what's significant about that? You see, God coming down to us, that is literally the only way that we could ever have a relationship with God. God coming down to us, the point of the Christmas story, God in flesh. God coming down is the only way that we could ever have a relationship with a God that is great and holy as Him. In the 1960s, the the first man was, was sent into space to orbit the globe. Everyone was freaking out about it. They're like, this has never been done before. And, and when this, this cosmonaut this, this got up there, this, uh, this politician reported that when that cosmonaut got to space, he didn't see God. And so the conclusion was, well, there, therefore must not be a God. 
We've never gone that high before. We've always believed God is up there. And so this cosmonaut went up there. He saw no sign of God. And so this, this statesman concluded, there must not be a God. C.S. Lewis wrote an article in response to that statement. He said, look, this is my paraphrase. He says, if there's a God who made us, if there's a God who, was, who actually made us, he was transcendent enough, different enough from us that he could be our maker, who was there before the beginning, then we wouldn't be able to discover this God just by going up. God wouldn't relate to humans the way a man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. He would relate to us in the way that that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. You see, Shakespeare created Hamlet. Shakespeare created the world that Hamlet lives in. And so the only way that Hamlet could ever know the author of his own story that he's living in is if Shakespeare revealed himself somehow to Hamlet in the play, in the story. You see, in a way, God has done that through inspiring and preserving his word for us. But the story of Christmas does even better than that. You see, at Christmas, God didn't just write some more information about himself and stick it in a book. No, he actually wrote himself into the story of the world. God wrote himself as a character in the story of humanity. He came into our world in the person of Jesus to live for us, to die for us, and to rise for us. You see, Christmas reminds us that God drew near. That was our only hope. That was our only hope in life, our only hope in death. And God provided in the person of Jesus. The third thing for the third reason to answer why Christmas happened is that God is, is growing his family. God is growing his family through adoption. He's growing his family. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John's saying, look, everything that we've seen about Jesus, he's saying everything that we've heard about Jesus, everything we've been proclaiming, and preaching about Jesus. He said, everything that I've taught you and told you about Jesus was so that you might have fellowship with us and with him. You see, John says the reason he's writing about the power of the Christmas story, about the beauty of the Christmas story, is so that other people can get in on that. It's so that other people can get in on the grace that he's enjoying. He's so like he's so stoked on the goodness of God's grace. He wants everyone to get in on that. He says, I'm doing this so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now we need to understand that word fellowship. Like, like what do you think of when you hear the word fellowship? What do you think of when you hear the word fellowship? Probably one or two of two things. One, Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> Or two, like some churchy event, right? 
Like that word kind of gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles. It's kind of like a, a churchy word, right? Like, oh, what are you going to do later on? I don't know. I think I'm going to go over to Brian's house and have fellowship, you know? Like we just throw the word around a lot. It's kind of overused in Christian circles, but look, we can't miss the meaning behind this word because it's, it's so beautiful, it's so important, it's so powerful. First John was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia, which literally means like share in common. Sharing in common. It's also where we get the word community from. Community is a common unity. Do you know what that tells us? If, if, if fellowship, if community is about sharing something in, in common, that tells us that community is really never just about community. Right? You, you, you following? Like community is never just about community. It's about what binds that community and holds it together. It's about what that group of people share in common. And so like, if you go to a Ducks game, there's a sense of community there, right? You have this stadium full of people of all shapes, ages, and colors, not just because they all like to hang out together on the same night, but because they share a common devotion for the same team. If you go to a birthday party, it's, it's the celebrant that sort of brings different people together, a common love and affection for that person. You see, the depth of the community that you have is, is based on whatever it is that unifies that community. The depth of the community that you have is based on whatever gathers that community together. And so for the Christian community, for Christian fellowship, what is it that we have in common? What is it that, that holds us together? What is our, our unifying power? The thing we have in common is Jesus. That's what we have in common. It's Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, then, then we have the same Savior. We worship the same King. He's the King who went to the cross. Now, and so now, because of that, because we share that, like the Bible says, we're family. We belong to one another. First Peter says it like this. He says, once you were not a people of God, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. You see, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then, then that is the most important thing about you. That is the most important thing about you, that you're part of the people of God. You see, the most important thing about me is not that I'm a pastor or that I'm clergy. It's not that I'm a father or that I'm a husband or a son or a brother or a friend. The most important thing about me is not what I do for a living or who I hang out with on the weekends. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I mostly hang out with you guys on the weekends. <laughs> but the most important thing about me is that I am not my own. 
The most important thing about me is that I am not my own. But I've been bought by the blood of Jesus. I've been adopted into his family. And that is true of every follower of Jesus. That is the story of every follower of Jesus. It's the most important thing about you if you're a Christian. The most important thing about you is what you believe. I mean, this is true for anyone. The most important thing about you is what you believe about who God is and who you think you are in relation to that. Jesus told his disciples over and over again, he, he, he drilled this point down over and over again that, that they're part of a people now, that they're part of a family now. He calls them, he says, you're, you're a city on a hill. That's what he tells his disciples at one point. You're a city on a hill. He says, you're a flock with a shepherd. You're a royal priesthood. In case you didn't know, like you, you, you can't be any of those things by yourself. You can't be a city by yourself, right? You can't be a community by yourself. You can't be a flock by yourself. Jesus came to earth to create a new community, a spiritual family. And see, Jesus was on a mission to grow that family. That was why he came, was so that he could gather that family and grow that family. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we all deserve to die. And he rose from the grave in triumphant victory over Satan, sin, and death. And every single one of us who are in him, we get the benefits of that. We get the benefits of his grace by faith. That is why Jesus came. This right here is why Jesus came. It's for sinners to adopt sinners into his family. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. He charged his close group of friends with that same mission that he gave, that he had came for. He charged his close group of friends with what's been called the Great Commission. After Jesus rose, he met up with his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he said, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. You see, in that mission right there, that mission that Jesus came for, that he started, that he passed the baton on to, to his disciples, including John, that mission was John's joy. That mission was John's joy. Read verse 4 with me in 1 John 1. John says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be, what? Complete. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You want to know what brings John joy? It's when disciples are made. It's when people come to know the grace that was extended through Jesus. It's when people draw near to him as he draws near to them. When people get plugged into a local church, when they join the household of faith, that's what brings John joy. 
Disciples making disciples, churches planting churches. That was John's joy. And man, let that be our joy too. Let that be our joy. You see, he calls this type of joy that he has, when, when this happens, he says that that completes my joy. It's, it's not a temporary joy. It's a lasting joy. And look, that is the reason for Christmas. That is the reason that Jesus came. It's also the reason that we're planning this church. We're not here to primarily do something new. We're here to participate in Jesus' sovereign work that he's been accomplishing throughout history. Disciples making disciples. Churches planting churches. We want to see more and more people encounter the grace of the gospel of Jesus. We want to see more and more people encounter the community of Jesus through the church of Jesus. I get asked a lot, um, mostly by like my, my, my skeptic friends in the area, I get asked a lot, why plan another church? Why plan another church in, in this area? To which I reply, like, like why not? <laughs> Look, the second that every church is reaching every person in every neighborhood, then that's when we can stop planting churches. That's when we can stop making disciples. But until then, we're going to participate in Jesus' mission of making disciples through church planting, the mission that, that he charged the disciples, the mission that he promised he would be with them on. He said, not even the gates of hell will prevail against you. That was Jesus' mission. That was John's mission, and that's our mission. For the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors, through the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.